Please turn with me to Judges chapter 13. There we go. Now we got some sound. All right. Power. <laughs> Samson is the Hercules of the Bible. For example, he once killed a lion with his bare hands. We have light. We have sound. Praise the Lord. Thank you. And it was good. He once killed a lion with his bare hands. He slaughtered a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. One time he... Uh, took 300 foxes, tied their tails together, lit them on fire, and set them loose through the cornfield of the Philistine uh, enemy, uh, creating a, a firestorm. One time he snuck out at night and sort of like a, a, a kind of a prank of an overgrown, uh, overgrown boy on Halloween night. He went out and stole the great city gates of Gaza just for fun. Uh, Samson loved a good fight, but it was all muscle fighting. He basically never used his brain. He had a huge body, but a, a pygmy mind. He was like Superman, <laughs> able to uh, leap tall buildings with a single bound. But just like Superman, he also had his kryptonite. He had a weakness. He was as helpless and as weak as a baby in the hands of a beautiful woman. One author called him a he-man with a she-weakness. That's Samson. And more than anything else, that led to his tragic downfall. And I want to take a look at his life this morning really briefly. Now there were a couple of good points as were pointed out in the video about Samson. First of all, he bravely stood his ground and fought against Israel's enemies when the mighty tribe of Judah uh, basically ran from the battlefield for their lives. He stood his ground. He worshiped God. Uh, maybe not perfectly, but he did. While most of the People of Israel worshipped other gods and idols, and so he stood alone as a militant, solitary, and a defiant man of God. Let me give you a little background on Samson this morning. His life actually revolved around four women. His mother, his bride, a harlot, and also the infamous Delilah. First and foremost was the positive influence of his godly mother. Take a look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 13. This was the very beginning of uh, Samson's life. Verse 1, Now the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of God, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Let me stop right there. Even though God's people are unrepentant, they're in, perpetual, they're in a perpetual state of rebellion, uh, God in his grace and mercy is, is going to uh, deliver them from uh, the Philistines. And after 40 long years under the harsh boot of Philistia, uh, this had to be welcoming words uh, of grace and mercy that he was going to raise up this uh, man of God who was going to deliver them finally. Uh, from Israel. Verse uh, 5, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
Now, in the next couple of verses, the woman tells her husband, Manoah, that she's had this divine encounter with an angel. And Manoah, her husband, gets all excited. He begs God for another visitation because he really has a few questions of his own. How is he going to raise this boy? He wants to be a good dad. If he's going to deliver Israel, basically, uh, how is he going to do the very best job he can in raising this boy? And so in verse 12, 12 he asks the, the angel, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the word's mode of life? and his vocation. Again, uh, if he's going to fulfill his destiny, how can I, Manoah wants to know, how can I be the best dad I possibly can and prepare him as he leads our people out of this bondage? Back in verse 5, the angel had given specific instructions as to how to raise uh, this boy that was to come into the world. He was to be a Nazarite to God. What's a Nazarite? Well, the word Nazarite in the Hebrew means to separate, uh, to abstain, to be set apart. And in the book of Numbers, it, it spelled out what the Nazarite vow was all about. Basically three things. If you took the Nazarite vow, number one, first and foremost, you were not to touch anything dead or even go near it. Secondly, you were not to drink wine or grape juice or anything from the vine. And thirdly, you were not to cut your hair. Now that seems simple and easy enough, but Sam, in Samson's life, he's going to violate uh, every single one of these, and, and then some. Why would anybody take a vow like that? Why would you take a Nazarite vow if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament? Well, when you took the Nazarite vow, what you were doing was making a, a, a public statement. You were setting yourself apart as different, as, as unique from the culture around us. Uh, it was a public statement that basically said, uh, you're going to live by a different uh, set of standards. You're going to live by a different set of rules. And basically, you're not going to go with the flow. You're not going to ride with the tide. You're going to be unique. You're going to be different. You're going to be set apart as holy for God's use. Now, we know of at least four individuals in the Bible who took the Nazarite vow. Uh, of course, Samuel, uh, the prophet, Samson here in our passage. Uh, John the Baptist took that vow. And also Paul, the Apostle Paul, although he only took it for a short period of time. In any case, while you and I might not take the Nazarite vow, that was Samson's mission in life, uh, to be set apart. And in reality, that's our mission as well. We are called to be different. First uh, Peter talks about being a peculiar people. Not odd, but different, set apart. Uh, as believers, we're called to live by a different set of standards than the world. We're not to uh, go with the flow and ride with the tide. We're, we're as Christians called to, to, to go against the grain, to be willing to stand apart, to, to stand up against evil if necessary, to make a difference, to make an impact in the world around us. Are you different? <laughs> somebody, somebody said, I'm really different, but are we different? Are we set apart? I talked to someone here a while ago who said that um, someone in their office they, they've been working with for years found out he was a Christian, and she said, wow, I didn't know you were a Christian. You're, you're the last person I thought. Well, <laughs> why is that? We're called to be different. Are you different? Do people see something different in your life? That was Samson's mission from God. He was supposed to be set apart for God's use. Now, submission to the will of God. Uh, the, the parents here in verse 19, they, they set up and make a burnt offering to the Lord. And verse 20 says that while they were making this burnt offering, kind of a, a miraculous display of fire shoots out from the, from the idol up into the sky. And the angel that they were talking to ascends up into heaven. And all of that was proof, confirmation that this truly was, this promise was truly from God himself. That's all they needed. And sure enough, later on a son is born. 
to this very godly couple. Look at verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to a son, named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Ashtahol. Now, from, from this very first part of Samson's life, we can draw a key principle, and that's this. Sensual kids can come and be born from spiritual parents. Uh, we're going to see in the life of Samson, basically, that there really is no guarantee that a godly biblical home is going to produce a godly biblical child. And Samson's a great illustration of that. He was born as a child uh, born of prayer. He came as a direct result of an angelic appearance and a miraculous uh, announcement. He was born to a godly couple who were sensitive and, and obedient. He was richly blessed by God, and he had the Holy Spirit of God empowering him. It doesn't get any better than that. And yet, if Samson's life teaches us anything as parents, it teaches us that even though children have, may have a, a spiritual head start, they can still plunge you know, headlong into carnality and calamity. Some of the most godless kids can come out of the most godly homes. Why? Why is that? Because kids will still make their own choices. I can't tell you the number of times that parents will come to me and beat themselves over the head with guilt because their kids didn't turn out the way they hoped, the way they prepared them. Yes, we're supposed to do the best job we can as parents to raise our kids in the admonition and instruction of the Lord, but the choices they make are their own later on in life. Think about the very first kids, so to speak, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, the perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, running around naked and uh, you know, uh, naming all the animals. I mean, they had it made. Uh, the perfect uh, parenting of God the Father himself who used to walk with them in the cool of the night. Perfect nature, perfect nurture, and yet they blew it big time. Why? Because our kids are going to make their own choices. Again, we do the best job we can as parents, and we're responsible for that, and we're accountable to, to raise up our kids and to instruct them in the ways of the Lord, to plug them into church and, and, and help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in the body of Christ, and yet as they get older, they will have to make their own choices. They're going to have to make their faith their own. Now there's a second woman in Samson's life, and that's his bride. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it begins many years later. Samson is a, a young man in his late teens, maybe early 20s. He's uh, basically running on his out-of-control hormones. Uh, this man is unable, he's unwilling to control his passions, and he sees a dazzling, uh, hot Philistine woman, and he basically is absolutely obsessed with her. He wants her. Take a look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah. He saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our own people that you should take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She looks good to me. <laughs> so here's the very first scene where we have this uh, young Samson. He's walking down the streets of a Philistine uh, village, a town called Timnah. Timnah is about six miles away from where he lives, and it's in enemy territory. What's he doing in Timnah? Well, we know that he wasn't there assuming his role as a leader of God's people. 
He wasn't there uh, preparing to rally his fellow Israelites against them. He wasn't there to gather intelligence. No, he was there to check out the babes. He was there to check out the girls. And what he saw, he was, what he, and he saw what he was looking for. Again, a, a, a beautiful-looking uh, young woman that Samson absolutely fell in lust with. He's led by his uh, lust. He's governed by his glands. And so he takes a major break from both his parents' wishes and also... Uh, takes a break from the commandments of God. You see, the Mosaic Law made it crystal clear you don't marry or intermarry with unbelievers. Uh, Moses made it very clear that when they went into the land of, of, of the promised land of Egypt, or Israel, uh, he had given uh, very specific instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering it to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall... Uh, you take their daughters for your sons. Why? What was the problem? What was the issue? What was the main concern? Among other things, God knew that an unbelieving spouse is a powerful magnet that will draw too often a believer away from their faith, their obedience, and their love to the one true and living God. Which is why the Apostle Paul says the very same thing in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he makes it very clear. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Why? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? In other words, what common foundation do you share upon which to build your life? Absolutely nothing. You see, the basic foundation of any relationship, especially the marriage relationship, is spiritual in nature. That's the bedrock, your spiritual commonality in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are clear. Believers are to marry only believers. And so for a Christian to marry a non-Christian is simply not an option. Now, if you're in that kind of a marriage, there's nothing you can do about it at this point. But I'll tell you something. There are dozens and dozens of men and women who I could have come up here that I know of that would share tearful testimony of being married to someone who's not a believer. And the turmoil of that and the heartache of that is overwhelming because they don't share that basic foundation, that spiritual foundation of their relationship with the one true and living God. Now, most of them starting out, start out thinking, I'm going to convert this person. You know, they call that missionary dating. It seldom, if ever, works. And then it leads to missionary marriage, and that also seldom, if ever, works. And then on top of that, you've got the negative spiritual impact upon the kids. My dad used to jokingly tell me, Brad, when I was growing up, you know, you can fall in love with a rich girl just as easy as you can a poor one. <laughs> and his implication, he was laughing, marry a rich girl, you know. But it's also true that you can fall in love with a non-believer, an unbeliever, just as easy, just as easy as you can a, a Christian. And so my counsel is, don't even date an unbeliever. Don't even go there. Christian young people, make a commitment before the Lord not to, not to go down that route. It's a rough road. It will lead to turmoil. It, would lead, it will lead to heartache. Samson doesn't care. Uh, he he's just doesn't really care what God says. In fact, he's, he's bent, and his flawed character is exposed in verse 7. 
he basically tells us this woman looked good. She looked good. What else is there, right? He's thinking she'll make a great trophy wife. Which brings us to the second principle that we gain from the life of Samson that we glean from this passage, and that's this. A lustful person focuses on the external rather than the internal. You know, it's interesting that the very first recorded words of Samson, very first recorded words, I saw a woman. First, first thing we know that he said. Three times in this passage, Samson refers to this Philistine woman totally in visual terms. He never mentions anything about her internal qualities, even if she had any. His attitude is, who cares if she's a pagan? Who cares if she's an atheist? Who cares if she's an unbeliever? She's hot. <laughs> That's all I care about. That was Samson. A lustful person focuses on the external rather than the internal. You know, we live in a culture... <laughs> that has done everything it can to focus on the external and animalize sexuality. Most people don't realize that human sexuality was designed by God. He's the one that came up with the idea, and it is to be very different from the sex of an animal. Think about it. Animals do not have a relationship to enhance. Animals are motivated to mate by a cycle of heat and ovulation. Animals are driven by seasonal impulses rather than for pleasure and interaction. God made humans very, very different. Mark Otterberry, in his book, points out that humans are the only creatures on earth who are capable of understanding and enjoying romance. Only humans, he points out, enjoy candlelight dinners, walks in the moonlight, love letters, poems, romantic music, back rubs, and passionate kissing. Put it all together, and the conclusion is unmistakable. God intended for sexual, human sexuality to have a higher purpose than just mere procreation. He intended it to be a means of personal interaction and relationship building, something that would elevate and enhance the marriage relationship. In other words, he intended it to have a spiritual dimension. You were designed to make love in all its facets and dimensions and to know intimacy that reaches all the way down to your soul. That's the way God designed it. It's that all-important core spiritual dimension that is the very thing that lust causes you to ignore. A lustful person focuses on the external rather than the internal. It's sort of like the beautiful uh, painting I one time saw. In a, I saw a Rembrandt one time, and, and it was only about, you know, so big, but the frame around it was huge. Big, wide frame. It was ornate. It was wood carved, scrolled, overlaid with, with uh, gold leaf. And it was so easy to get caught up in the frame instead of the masterpiece. So easy to do. Which is why Peter warns, do not let your adornment be merely external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. When you look at someone, is your focus on the, on the frame or on the masterpiece? Is it on the appearance or is it on the heart? When the prophet Samuel was ready to anoint a very impressive looking king, uh, a young man who was just so good looking and tall, and God had to warn the prophet and say, look, do not look at his appearance. Do not look at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for God looks at the outward, or man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, in spite of Samson's runaway lust, we see here in verse 4, the fact that God, it's, it's amazing, God is still in control. Look at verse 4. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. In other words, God was still working. 
God was in and through, working in and through all of this. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. That tells us that uh, it's amazing that even in, in the midst of his disobedience and in the midst of his rebellion, God is still going to fulfill his destiny through this man, with all his faults, with all his weaknesses, through all of his sin. God is still at work. It's amazing how he still redeems uh, Samson in spite of himself. It's amazing that God will work through even his lust and his rebellion to drive a wedge into the ranks of the Philistines to destroy them. And that was God's original intent. Now, picking it up here in verse 5, we have an incident in uh, Samson's life when the Spirit of God came mightily upon him, basically to overcome an attacking lion. Judges 14, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a, a kid, that is a lamb, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands, went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some of, uh, to them, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Why? <laughs> that was a direct violation of the Nazarite vow. You don't touch anything dead. You don't go near it. And on top of that, I don't think it's incidental that he happened to be walking through a vineyard. Violation number two, you don't take anything, you don't eat anything from the vine. And so Samson is going to use this little incident to pose a riddle on his wedding day. Take a look at uh, verse 10. Then his father went down to the woman. Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. And it came about when he saw him that he brought, when they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. And so the, <laughs> they place the bets. The riddle is put forth. Here it is. He said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it came about on the fourth day, they went to uh, and said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. <laughs> They're taking this seriously. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me. And you have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I've not told it to my father or mother. Why should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted, and it came about on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you have not, would have not found out about my riddle. <laughs> I love that phrase. I don't know why. If you hadn't messed with my wife... If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't, wouldn't know these things. Don't mess with my, don't, don't plow with my heifer. Then the, 
I, I found that hilarious. But anyway, this. <laughs> then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them, took their spoil, and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house, but Samson's wife was, was given to his companion, who had been his friend. So obviously Samson had lost that loving feeling. He's not in a, uh, a honeymoon mood, so he storms off and he goes back to his mom and dad. He goes back to the parents' house to kind of cool his jets a little bit. He leaves his bride-to-be behind and they give, him to basically his, they give her to his best man and she marries him. Sometime later, he doesn't know this, but the harvest mood boon is beginning to pull on Samson's libido. And so he, 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 he goes to the door of his wife's room with flowers in his hand seeking an apology. It actually wasn't flowers, it was a goat, but uh, it doesn't translate too romantically uh, in our passage here. Judges chapter 15, verse 1, but after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. And her father said, I really thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, let hers be yours instead. Now, we don't know what her sister looked like, but Samson wasn't interested. His romance leads to rage. His rage leads to uh, vengeance. Verse 3, Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And Samson went, he caught 300 foxes, took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, put one torch in the middle between two tails, and when he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and the groves. And so Samson's anger turns to arson. Then things get worse. And tragically, one act of revenge leads to another. The Philistines retaliate. They burn the house down and kill both his uh, fiancée and her father. Then it gets worse. Samson retaliates. He turns around and strikes them here. It says, ruthlessly with great slaughter. And then it gets worse. His terrified countrymen tie him up with ropes, deliver him over to the Philistines. It says in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. He breaks out from his ropes. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and he slaughters 1,000 of the Philistines. What a dramatic mess. What a violent mess. It leads to the third principle that we find from our passage. The lustful life leads to one tragedy after another. The lustful life leads to one tragedy after another. His lust leads to rage. His rage leads to revenge. His revenge leads to even more uh, horrible violence. As Proverbs 29:22 points out, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. And by transgression, an evil man is ensnared. He's trapped. Samson is ensnared by his lust and in his anger and in his vengeance and in even more violence. Uh, then things seem to kind of settle down for a while. In verse 20, it tells us that for the next 20 years, Samson ruled as judge over Israel. And according to Hebrews 11, he apparently did so with righteousness and by faith. Evidently, for 20 years, he was the faithful leader God called him to be. But before he could deliver his people, he blows it again, and he blows it big time. Judges 16.1 tells us that one day he was going to the city of Gaza, another uh, city in the, in the territory of his enemy, and there it states he saw a harlot and went into her. 
This walk on the wild side almost cost him his life. Verse 2, Then it was told to the uh, Gazites, saying, Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders, carried them up to the top of a mountain, which is opposite Hebron. <laughs> it's like, hey, what are you going to do about this? You know, uh, That little episode brings us to the fourth principle, that lust may be dormant, but it is never dead. It may be dormant but it is never dead. One author put it this way, like embers smoldering beneath the surface of a thought-to-be-extinguished campfire, lust, when fanned in the open air, can fuel a forest fire, and invariably someone always gets burned. Proverbs 6.26, For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot clothes or coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, if you're going to mess with fire, you are going to get burned. Samson's lustful life is also described for us in James chapter 1. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Every trap in this tragic hero's life is tripped up by his lust, and it will ultimately cost him his life. And the greatest tragedy on top of that is that Samson was so distracted by his lust and in constant pursuit of sexual gratification that he never became the Moses-like deliverer that God called him, called him to be. He never fulfilled God's purpose and plan for his life. He never experienced the blessings, the victory, the joy of being in a right relationship with God. He never experienced any of that. Let's make this personal. How about you? If you were to be honest, are, are there any sexual traps in your own life that are constantly tripping you up? Is there anything distracting you from fulfilling God's purpose and plan in your life, from experiencing His full approval and blessing in your own heart and life? Mark Atterbury has written a great book dealing with sexual temptation. And he suggests four steps that, that I've not only applied in my own life in years past, but also I've used it to counsel others as well. Four steps. Number one, first and foremost, get right. Number one, get right. In other words, get right with God. That's really the very first step before you do anything else. The Bible says to, in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. In other words, guard the gate. Guard your heart. Be careful what you look at, what you listen to, what you read, what you expose yourself to. Be careful. Guard your heart. There's an old... Um, uh, computer phrase, gigo, G-I-G-O, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you program into the computer, it'll come out. Whatever we program into our heart by what we experience, what we see, what we expose ourselves to, what we listen, what, what we read, it affects the heart. That's where we have to start. Back when I was in college, I, I uh, decided to restore a 1956 Ford, kind of a junker. Uh, what was the first thing I did? Well, the very first thing I did wasn't to go down and give it a spiffy paint job. The first thing I did wasn't to re-chrome the bumper and the, and, the, and the hood ornament. I would do that later. 
The first thing I did wasn't to reupholster the seats. Again, I did all that later. The very first thing I did was open up the hood and tear into the engine. Because when somebody once told me, she ain't worth painting if she don't run. <laughs> the process of getting right always begins under the hood. It means getting your heart right with God before any other steps. It's getting on your knees and confessing all of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It means calling it what it is, sin, and saying, God, I confess this. And then you make up your mind. You claim God's forgiveness, and you make up your mind never to do anything that would violate that, that commitment you've made to sexual purity. Get right, number one, first and foremost. Get your heart right. Number two, get away. Paul said to a young man by the name of Timothy, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Run. Don't resist it. Don't fight it. Run. Otherwise, you will not make it. You will fail and you will falter. You have to cut yourself off from anything and everything that makes it easy for you to abandon that commitment to sexual purity. They said that when Julius Caesar invaded Britain, he came with a huge group of, of, of men and ships, and they landed the ships, and they unloaded everything, and they unloaded all the men. And then later that night, he sent a young or a, a small band of young men back to burn the ships, burn them, sink them. As they sank, Caesar's men realized that there was no longer any retreat. That was no longer an option. And their chance of success was greatly uh, uh, increased. Why? Because they knew that you couldn't turn back. It's not an option. And so they had given everything now to go forward. They couldn't go back. And so what ships do you need to sink? Maybe your fleet consists of internet porn or the, the sex videos that you keep hidden away. Maybe it's those trashy romance novels that men and women read. That's literary pornography. Maybe it's those premium movie channels that you pay extra for. Maybe it's that job that continues to uh, send you off to uh, places where you have to be in a hotel room alone and um, far from home. Or that coworker that you've been flirting with. What ships do you need to sink? Get rid of them in your life. Does that sound radical? Yes. Is it, is it necessary? Absolutely critical. If you're not at all serious about your sexual desires and involvements, uh, then you won't do that. You have to sink ships. You have to get out of those situations. If you don't, again, you will fall and fail miserably. So get right, number one. Number two, get away. Thirdly, get help. Samson is an example of someone who allowed lust to become an addiction. They say today that one out of every ten men are addicted to sex. We're not talking about a normal sex drive. We're talking about a, an addiction that expresses itself in chronic and, and, and inappropriate behavior. Have you noticed lately? Just about every day on the news, uh, we hear of someone who's been outed for bad sexual behavior, for sexual harassment, or some kind of a sexual perversion. Men are dropping like flies. In the entertainment industry, in the political arena, in the corporate world, sexual addiction and inappropriate sexual behavior is an epidemic today. They're finally realizing that. And so many will see their careers and their most precious relationships be destroyed because they can't basically change their behavior. They don't have the strength to quit. And that person needs help. And fortunately, there are excellent organizations, there's great support groups and counselors who have been very effective in dealing with the whole area of sexual addiction. Get help. Finally, get busy. <laughs> fill up your downtime. I guarantee if you don't fill up your downtime, the enemy will. 
Jesus once told a story about a, a man who had an evil spirit. And that evil spirit left the man and wandered out in the wilderness for a while and came back and found that that man's life was totally empty. And so that evil spirit recruited seven more, worse than himself, and they repossessed that man, and he was far worse than he could ever be. The point is that we have to fill the time. We have to fill that void uh, that, that, that might be there because of an addiction that left, and yet if we don't fill that time, uh, the addiction will come back. And so let me encourage you, fill it up with time and energy, focusing on your relationship with God, focusing on prayer, get into God's word, get into fellowship, get plugged into a church family. Start growing spiritually in your heart and in your life. David is another example of someone who blew it. Lust, adultery, murder, overwhelmed with the mess that he was in. He, uh, <laughs> he wrote this prayer that I want to close with. Listen carefully to these words in Psalm 32. He said, when I, confessed, when I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. All my guilt is gone. Praise the Lord. Get right. Get away. Get help. Get busy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that abides within us, apart from which we can do nothing. And Lord, we just come before you. We are totally dependent upon you, the resources of your word, the presence of your spirit. Help us, Father, to be all that you've called us to be, to fulfill our destiny as men and women, as children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, Father, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Help us to reflect the love and light and power of Jesus in all that we say and all that we do. May we be holy, set apart. Father, our desire is to follow hard after you, to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And Father, we need the courage to, to get those things out of our lives that are tripping us up to remove those things radically from our life that's keeping us from experiencing the joy and the blessing of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to know the victory of what that means and, and what we can experience in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would go with us from this place and this week help us in, in the process. Help us in our workplace. Help us with our family, our friends, and our neighborhood and our community. Help us, Father, to... Uh, Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Help us, Father, to be aware of the, the tendencies that we have, that we all have, that we all struggle with, the battles that we're in. Help us to realize that that battle is yours. Help us to depend upon you, to draw our strength from you, to walk in your spirit, to be guided by your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a, 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 a people unique and centered upon the Word of God, centered upon who Jesus really is. And may we lift Him up in all that we say and do, because your promise is, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And Father, we want to lift up Jesus. May He be reflected in and through everything we are and all that we do and all that we say. So help us to guard our hearts. Help us to guard the gate. Help us, Father, to, to look to You and to, to focus our heart and our lives fully, completely upon what you have called us to be, like Jesus. We thank you and we praise you, and, and it's in his name we pray and all God's people said.